0: Here we go. This day in history today is the 13th of October. And on this day in A.D. 54, the Roman emperor Claudius I died after being poisoned by his wife Agrippina. So it uh, tells you you get up in the morning, you may not go to bed that night, um, especially if you have a wife that's uh, somehow trying to usurp your authority or whatever. And that's what happened to uh, Claudius I. And uh, no more or less other than that we don't know the last day of our life. We don't know the last breath we'll take. One of us could keel, I could keel over right now from excitement. So uh, you just, you don't know. Um, And this day in uh, 1775, the Continental Congress, which was replaced by our current government, this was the War Congress, the Continental Congress ordered the construction of a naval fleet. And so we, for the first time in America, had a fleet which we could... Uh, engage our enemies in. I believe, and I, I, I may be wrong on this, but I believe that John Paul Jones was a part of that, you know, his great thing. I have not be, yet begun to fight and all that. I believe he was a part of that fleet originally. Um, then in 1792, we, the uh, cornerstone of the executive mansion was laid in Washington, D.C. The building became known as the White House in 1818. Um, then uh, on the same day in 1812, American forces, and I, I had no idea, I had no idea about this, American forces were defeated at the Battle of Queenstown Heights. The British victory effectively ended any further U.S. invasion of Canada. I never knew that we were up there trying to get Canada, but uh, the Lord wanted us exactly as we are. I can tell you, I will say this, that if you look at America people say, ah, America, you know, it's not part of God's plan. It is. There are 50 states. There are 48 contiguous states. There are 48 Levitical um, towns within the nation of Israel. If you look at the patterns, the way that America is laid out, it's laid out exactly like the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness, where the the gold is, where the bread is, where the oil is, all these different things, where the table of Sacrifices is, is, where our government is. All of these things are laid out just like, it's the only country on earth that does this too. Um, there were 13 original colonies and you have the 13 tribes of Israel which includes Levi who wasn't counted among the tribes or this one at one time or another but uh, I, I could go through patterns and patterns all day long. So God decided that we would not move north or south or anything but uh, that this is how things would work out and that's a great study. One of these days we can do that as a study in a Bible study and that reminds me Seeing as how I'm in this day in history, but I want to uh, announce right now that I am going to have Bible studies before church on Sundays. So if you want to be here at 8:45, please come. We'll have just an hour Bible study, and then we'll have church service 8:45 um, on Sunday, and then also on Wednesday at uh, 5 p.m. until 6:30 p.m. I go. To, I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning on Thursday to work, and so uh, it, it, you know it's just a little too late for me to stay till 8 or 9 o'clock. So from 5 until 6.30, we'll have a Bible study. If two people show up, that's fine with me because I love little groups as much as I love big groups. But anybody is welcome to come anytime. And uh, the Bible studies are fun. We try to make them enjoyable. And uh, people can talk back and forth. And uh, we have a board which... uh, and do all kinds of little demonstrations if you don't understand I can explain better with my hands and with my uh, my mouth sometimes but uh, anyway there's the Bible studies and they're posted on the window outside but please feel free to come by and invite people to uh, to uh, study God's word and uh, let's see here so um, that was uh, Canada and then 1943 during World War II Italy signed an armistice with the Allies and declared war on Germany here they were a part of the Axis powers and uh, they were defeated they signed a uh, an alliance with us, and then off they declare war on Germany, which they were totally incapable of fighting anymore against Germany. It was kind of, a, you know, just a, something to uh, show allegiance with us. But anyway, same day on uh, one year later, on 13 October, American troops entered Aiken, Germany, during World War II, which meant that we were over the Rhine and we were into the German fatherland Motherland, whatever they call it, and fatherland, I think. Anyway, um, and uh, so the war was quickly coming to an end. Uh, 1951 in Atlanta, Georgia, a football with a rubber covering was used for the first time. It used to be called the what? Pigskin. And the name is carried over. They still call it that, but nowadays it's made with a rubber covering. And uh, that was Georgia Tech versus Louisiana. Georgia Tech stomped them 25 to 7. And. Uh, then on this day, this is almost comical. Um, Bing, Co- Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra spent an hour of their lives on TV introducing the Ford Edsel. They ended up losing three hundred and fifty million dollars. The Ford Edsel—it's a type of car, <laughs> nineteen fifty-seven—and uh, so the Ford Edsel tanked. In today's dollars, it's over two billion dollars, almost three. So uh, they they lost their shirt, and uh, the Edsel is uh, just a memory now. And then uh, finally, 1995, just kind of an interesting thing. Walt Disney Resort admitted its 500 millionth guest. So imagine that. Walt Disney with one little bit of inspiration, and he's done just amazing things. And you can too, I assure you. If you just put your heart uh, towards the Lord, he will just use you in great ways. So there you go, little life application from the Bible there. And um, we're going to go ahead and read the introductory psalm. Today is uh, Psalm 127. I'm getting out of Genesis for a week. We'll be back in Genesis next week, but I wanted to do something special for this first time meeting here. The 127th psalm, and this is entitled, Unless the Lord Builds the House, subtitled The Superior Word. So here we go to Psalm 127. This is one of the psalms of ascents. If you don't know what they are, uh, right after the 119th psalm, the psalms of ascents are introduced. There's 14 of them and they start outside of the borders of Israel and they show the longing of people to return to their homeland. And eventually they get up to the borders of Israel. They get into Israel and their eyes are directed towards Jerusalem and then towards God's temple and then to the holy place and the most holy place. And it's 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 called the pilgrim's songs because these people are coming into the land and they're going to fellowship with God there at the temple. So uh, this is one of the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 127 says... A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Glorious Heavenly Father, I'd like to take a moment and ask that you uh, bless this sermon and bless the people that are here. Build them up and edify them in your word. And may this house, which is your house, be dedicated to your honor and glory. And may you be the one that builds it all the days that we meet in it, whether it be this one day or for 20 years. May you be the Lord of this house. And we want to give you the praise and the glory and the honor that you are due. You are God, and we are man. And we look to you with eyes of expectation and gratitude for all that you have done and that you will do. And we love you, and we praise you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Every morning when I get up, I read a portion of the 119th Psalm. Now this, unlike the 117th, with the, which I read a little earlier, is the longest chapter in the Bible, it's uh, 176 verses long, but it's divided into 22 octaves, 8 verses each, and it's based on the Hebrew Aleph Bet, or the alphabet of the Hebrew language, in other words, the first 8 verses begin with Aleph, the second uh, begin with Bet, etc., so it's, it's beautifully organized, it's beautifully arranged, and it is a marvel of literature, it really is, if you understand the intricacy of it in the Hebrew, it is an amazing psalm, but I read this uh, each morning as I get up. I read one octave before I do anything else, and it helps me to set my eyes on God because all but two of the verses mention the Lord and ask for direction and wisdom from him. It's a great thing to do to start your daily Bible reading and then you know get into the other things that you do throughout the day. But again and again during this psalm, the psalmist speaks of God's word, and he asks for it to be his guide, his meditation, his food, and his light. And one of the verses which is in here always makes me laugh when I read it because it describes me extremely well. Simple. uh, God's word can sink even into a a simpleton like me is the idea that I'm trying to get across to you is that he can take this marvel of understanding and he can inject it into a guy with a... You know, sometimes I don't think the way that most people do, I think. And he can even use me in this regard. And so... uh, when I read these words, there's comfort in knowing that he can use me for his good, for my good, and for his glory. Here's what it says It says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The entrance of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. Yes, it does. The word of God, given to us by God through a special and select nation of people, reveals his very heart and the love that he has for us, his rebellious creatures. It is the greatest treasure on earth and yet it usually sits alone and dusty in a corner of the house neglected by the very people that he so desperately loves. This word, this precious word was beautifully described by someone whom I'd like to meet someday. He didn't sign his name to what he wrote but my feeling is that it is one of the most honoring uh, descriptions of the Bible that was ever written. Now I think he probably didn't Uh, sign his name because he feels that it falls short of the majesty of the Lord and the beauty of the Bible itself. But even if this is true, the description is worthy of repeating. And so I want to read it to you. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, and the soldier's sword. It is the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Our text verse for today comes from Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. The Lord is the creator, and thus he is the owner of all things. His throne is heaven, and the earth is his footstool. Of all of the majesty, of the beauty, and the splendor that we see in the world around us, the earth is so low in comparison to God that he calls it a footstool. A footstool is a place where we rest our feet be they clean or be they dirty. It is a lowly implement in a person's house, and yet God compares this marvelous world where we live to a mere footstool. And then astonishingly, he goes on to tell us that of the all of the grandeur of the heavens and of the earth, his eyes are fixed on the poor and contrite person who trembles at his word. He has no regard for position, for wealth or for power and yet he esteems the person who cares enough about his word to read it and to tremble at it and so today I would ask you do you tremble when you read his word do you hold this gift this treasure this blessing from God in high esteem would you sacrifice all else even your own life if you were asked to compromise his word in order to keep from doing so if so then God looks on you with favor. But for those who dismiss this book, who ignore its words, who diminish its glory, God will judge that man and he will find him guilty. God holds his word in the highest of esteem. It is the superior word which he has graciously granted us the honor of searching out to discover his very heart. And so let us search it out. All the days of our lives, let us revere it, this word which reveals his Son, who in turn reveals his Father to us. And so, may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four thoughts for you today, and I want to tell you before I get into them that the first one is long. So when I say this is our second thought, don't think that the second and third and fourth are as long as the first, all right? Our first thought is, may the Lord build this house. Verse number one, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who build it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There was a man named Jesus, about 30, 32 years old. It was about the year 80, 30, 80, 32. People dispute these things. But he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Way? What way? He says, I am the truth. What truth? Is he talking about relative truth or absolute truth? He says, I'm the life. What kind of life? All kinds of life we talk about in daily, our daily speech. And then he says, no one comes to the Father. Is the term no one being used in a general sense or in an ultimate sense? And then what Father is he talking about? And what does through him, when he says except through me, what does that mean? Anyone? So here's the question. Do you believe this man's words or not? And it's not just that question, but what do these words mean? But let's suppose you do know his exact intent. Do you believe him? If so, why do you believe him? What is it that would cause cause you to trust that what he is saying and what he is claiming is actually supportable? What? What? What are you basing your faith on? Everything is established on something, either a truth or lie, something sound or something faulty, something vague or something concrete. Just because something is not true does not mean that it is not the basis for something else. A politician's platform may be based on the truth, or more probably, it'll be based on lies, depending on which the people will either respect him or they'll hate him. They'll love him or they'll rejoice in him. They'll trust him or they'll shun him. Scientology, if you know what that is. It was made up by a frustrated author named L. Ron Hubbard who said that the big money was in religion. He was an author. He said, I'm tired of writing for a penny a word and the big money is in religion. And so that's what I'm gonna do. And you can read that right in his own writings. And so he made up this religion right out of his head and he became a zillionaire. Never mind that it has no basis at all in reality. People still throw themselves headlong into it for whatever crazy reason fills their head. A building needs a foundation. The type of foundation makes all of the difference in the world and how that building will stand up to the time and to the elements. Venice, Italy, if you know, was built over a marshland. And so in order to make the city's dwelling sound, they had to bore all the way down through this muck with these tree posts and place them on the bedrock. There they have a hard surface, and so everything in Venice is actually built in this way. This kept all of the houses structurally sound, and it has worked for generations because there is a solid foundation below. Dams are built in the same way. If the foundation isn't secure, then the dam will simply burst open, and the people downstream will be at the mercy of a sudden flood of water. That's happened several times in America, where entire towns have been swept away. Human lives just gone because there was not a sound foundation. The Aswan Dam in Egypt has no bedrock to tie it to. And so what did they do? They had to develop a clay and rock formation. Now, if the Aswan Dam ever gives way, Egypt as a nation will face utter destruction. And the reason why, if you've ever looked at a picture of Egypt at night on that satellite photo of the world, there's just a little trickle of lights going along the the Nile, and then it gets down into the Nile Delta, where it all the water goes, and that's where all the lights are. And when that goes, or if it does, it will be utter destruction. I've got to tell you what, that is the reality of a possibly faulty foundation. Faith as well has to have a sure foundation. People can put their faith in anything they want, and God does not interfere with those choices. But unless those choices are based on reality, it's simply wasted faith. The saying that all paths lead to God cannot be true. The reason is because anyone can make up anything they want, like Scientology, or Char- Charlie Garrett could say, we're going to drink two milkshakes a day, every day for the rest of our life, and that is our path to God. And if all paths lead to God, then that would have to be a path to God. The problem is that logical contradictions cannot be true. In John 14:6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus' words are understood in the greater context of the Bible, then either there is only one way to be reconciled to God, meaning through him, or he was nuts. And if he was nuts, then he should not be called a great teacher or a man of God as non-Christians love to call him. Rather, they should call him a blasphemer and a person who is more contemptible than Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. But if he was telling the truth, then we should pay attention to him. Not in general, hey, let's listen to that guy there. But in the sense of complete devotion to his word. Not a portion of his word, not the parts of the Bible that we like or and dismissing the things that we don't like, but to his word, meaning from beginning to end and without dropping anything out or adding anything into it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. From the context of the Bible, we learn that if he is the way, meaning proper spirituality, and fellowship with God, then he is the only way, and there is no other. If he is the truth, then he is absolute truth. There is no falsehood in him. If he is the life, then he is the source of life, the giver of that life, the sustainer of that life, and the one who has authority to end it or allow it to continue at His will. If He is the Son of God, then the Father is God. And if the only way to be reconciled to the Father, who is God, is through Jesus, then there truly is no other way. And this isn't meant to scare you, but to give you the context of the Bible concerning His words. But that only leads to another issue. How can we know if the Bible, which provides the context, is true? How could we put our trust in the words of Jesus if the story leading to Jesus and the book which records his life is faulty? Now this is a problem because people all over the world claim that they know Jesus and yet they have no idea what his word says. Now thankfully, there's a little caveat for you here. Having a relationship with Jesus and fully understanding Jesus are two completely separate things. So here we have two incorrect ways of dealing with Jesus the first is to set out to prove or disprove the bible before committing to him okay the message of jesus is simple enough to accept at face value and all of the head knowledge in the world we can know everything that we could ever possibly know about the bible it will not do anything to establish a relationship with jesus that's true because you can go into seminaries all over America and these people know the Bible in and out and they have no relationship at all with him. So that's a wrong way of doing it. If a guy were to set out to determine if a particular woman was right for him by you know and becoming his wife, and so he wanted to learn everything about her from beginning to end, he would never come to the point of marrying that girl. Even if she was the perfect woman for him, because he's still finding out more stuff about her from moment to moment. There's enough information in the simple devotion to her to make a commitment. Likewise, we don't need to overanalyze Jesus Christ to the point where we never truly meet Jesus in our hearts. But there is a second incorrect, and I will say this, a horrifyingly stupid way of dealing with Jesus. It is to make the commitment and then to never get to know Jesus The fullness of why the commitment was so important in the first place. Why would a person marry another person and then not want to know anything more about her? Such would be a truly profane individual. Now, I know. I know that sometimes we find something out about our wife, not me, but some people will. Or they may find out something about their husband, which they don't like. But I got to tell you what. A human spouse cannot in any way compare to our Creator. And yet we spend more time trying to figure out who's going to win the next Super Bowl than we do trying to understand the Lord God Almighty. Speaking about a sure foundation, here are Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 7. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So knowing who Jesus is and believing him is necessary. But hearing his sayings and applying them to our lives is just as important. And the premise of the Bible is that Jesus is he is the Word of God. and Halagas, and Prostonteon, Keteos and Halagas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, his sayings aren't just words which come off his lips up there on the Mount of Beatitudes. Instead, they are the words that he uttered from the very beginning. His word spoke the universe into existence. His word proclaimed that there would be light. His breath filled the lungs of Adam and brought him to life. His word established a day of rest for his people, and his word spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai. He talked with Abraham. He spoke through the hand of Moses His voice called out to Elijah and to all of the other prophets. And his voice cried from a manger for his mother's milk. He is the one who explains the Father to us. And he reveals the very heart of God. His word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And yet, we fill our houses with TV and with Facebook. And we ignore the true source of life. This little building right here on Superior Avenue is also a house. And it's been given a name in honor of the word of God. It's a pun. It's meant to remind you of where we are, but also who we honor at the same time. It is the superior word. Don't forget where we are. We're on Superior Avenue. Tell your friends. But don't forget who and what we are here to honor. The superior word, Jesus Christ. And to honor him, we must honor his word, which is the Holy Bible. It is the record of his glory. We cannot come to know our groom in all of his fullness without the book which reveals him. And so when you walk in that front door right over there, you should expect this book right here to be opened, to be explained, to be revealed, to be studied, to be analyzed, to be revered. And to be placed in high honor. And to never, never be compromised. Even if it means offense. Somebody wants to get up and walk out that door. I'll feel good about it. Not because they're offended. But because I did my job. Even if it means hatred. Somebody gets upset and throws a rock through the front window. Because they don't like what I'm preaching here. The word of God. I'll fix the window. We'll move on. And even if it means death. To reader or listener. People have given their lives for this book and I am willing to give mine because it reveals Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God. May the Lord build this house and in the process may he build your house through this house. May you be established on the rock and so when the Flood of the waters come, they won't harm you. May the word enrich your life and fill your soul and guide your steps. May it be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. May it fill your mind with delight and your heart with joy as you ponder its words. And may the Lord be upon you in a new and exciting way each week as you come through this door and into this house in order to establish and build your own house. And may the work of your hands be established in all that you do, so that when you finally lay in rest, waiting for the calling of the Lord to raise you again to life, may the knowledge and pursuit of his superior word be a source of eternal rewards for you. You sought me in life. Now I shall reward you for all eternity. May it be so. May the Lord build the house, because if he doesn't, The builder has truly built in vain. Our second thought today, may the Lord guard this city. Verse 1 does continue. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In ancient times, the city had high walls surrounding it. There were gates which allowed people to come in and go out of the city. And they were shut at night. They were shut when enemies were seen in the far distance. And in the case of Israel, which we see in the book of Nehemiah, they were shut sometimes on the Sabbath day to keep people from the temptation of trading on it and thus violating that holy day. On the walls of the city, within earshot of those gatekeepers, high towers were placed so that a watchman could see far into the distance. And there he'd be like a a seaman on the top of a mast of a ship at sea. He could look out into the distance and he could watch and he could make sure that nothing bad was coming. But if he fell asleep, or if he was a hired trader, or if he simply got distracted by playing with his iPad, the enemy could attack, and he could quickly overtake that city. If you've ever been to uh, Jerusalem, the old city, you can see the high walls there and the gates, which they can even shut to this day. And that's the idea that we're getting when the Lord guards a city. This psalm tells us that even if the watchmen were attentive, though, to his duties. And even if he stayed awake and he stayed alert, unless the Lord was there with him guarding that city, the watchman watched in vain. America has its own high walls, don't we? We have the great seas which divide us. We have rivers and lakes along our borders which secure us. We have mountains and cliffs by which we're sheltered. America also has high walls of intelligence and of surveillance and of defense and ears listening on land and in the sea, and in the skies above. And yet, our walls were breached on September 11, 2001. We had violated our oaths, we had broken our covenants, and we had neglected the God who established us, and we received his warning and his chastisement. And then seven years later, we had an economic collapse. Our walls were breached. This little building right here, May it be a home for watchmen, and may it be guarded by the Lord. May we never depart from him, neglect to honor him, or fail to proclaim his superior word accurately and faithfully. May the Lord's good and Holy Spirit be with this congregation any time its doors are open. And may the one behind this pulpit, be it me or be it any other preacher or teacher, allow the Lord to guard and guide the watchmen Otherwise, we will have stayed awake in vain. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, may the same be true with this house. He wrote these words, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. That leads us to our third thought, which is the conduct of our lives. This is verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. I uh, don't know, some of you know this, but uh, I take care of them all at on Siesta Key. I've been doing it for like 20 years, and uh, I cut all the palm trees, and I cut the grass, and I fix things that need to be fixed, and I keep it clean, and the bathrooms need to be cleaned every morning. I get down there and clean the toilets, and I have no shame in that. I do all these things because it needs to be kept nice for the tourists and the people. The owners want a place that's respectable. And uh, one other thing that I do is I go into the dumpster every single day. I dumpster dive. People are always driving behind the mall, and they throw stuff in there. They throw in TVs, and they throw in barbecue grills, and they, they throw in all kinds of stuff, air conditioners. And so I pull it all back out. Some of it actually works, and I can give it away to people. I take it down to my mission work on Saturday morning. But the things that don't work or that are just useless, I strip apart. Then I got a bucket for uh, copper and one for brass and I've got one for stainless and I got one for regular steel and I got junk all over my house that I take once a month, put it in the back of my truck on my way to mission work and I sell it. And I get about a dollar an hour for it. I don't make anything. It's enough to pay for the gas and it's not worth the grief, but I hate the waste. And I got to tell you what, we all labor for something but what we labor for can be of profit to us or it can be of no profit to us, like my recycling job. In the immediate sense, it's a lot better to work for $20 an hour than it is for $10 an hour if you're working in the same job. It's better to work with a chemical mask if you're changing a chlorine gas cylinder than it is to hope that your lungs will hold out long enough to finish the task. I guarantee you, you can't, and the death is both horrifyingly painful and it's pretty certain. In all things, there is a right way and a wrong way to do things. The book of Ecclesiastes contrasts life under the heavens and life under the sun. One might think, if they're reading the book and they don't understand that premise, that Solomon was schizophrenic, because unless you understand the context there, he goes back and forth making claims about the useless nature of life and then telling you how great life is. Unless you understand the premise, he seems to make no sense at all. But man is given a choice to spend his days in the utterly foolish attempt of gratifying himself apart from God or living for God and under his umbrella of love and care and protection. The psalmist says that it is in vain for you to rise up early. Not that it isn't proper or beneficial, but it is vain. If you're living your life under the sun, then all is vanity and merely chasing after the wind. Rising up early to make an extra hour of wages is ultimately futile unless there is an end purpose for what you're doing. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Likewise, it's vain to sit up late. One can be like Thomas Edison. Think about Thomas Edison. The guy used to stay up all hours of the night, even into the wee hours of the morning, and he'd tinker and he, he'd invent. But unless there is an end To an end goal to what he's doing, then all of the invention, all of the achievement, all of the wealth, and all of the pomp will end up forgotten in a wooden box decaying under the clods of the earth. Solomon said these words to us. This is from Ecclesiastes 9. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it, Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise, spoken quietly, should be heard. Rather than the shout of a ruler of fools, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. What gift was the... Poor man's wisdom, but the temporary relief from the enemy. In the end, he was neither exalted nor was he remembered. Again, the psalmist tells us next that it is vain to eat the bread of sorrows. We can spend all of our effort toiling for money, security, or possessions. We can do so to the point of exhaustion. Such is the eating of the bread of sorrows. All of our efforts are directed towards satisfying temporary pleasures which end with our temporary life. But there is a contrast. The last thought of the verse says that he, the Lord, gives his beloved sleep. While the world is missing sleep because they have risen early and they've gone to bed late and afflicted themselves for profit, there is a place of rest for those whom God loves. Whether we eat much or whether we eat little, Whether we have wealth or whether we live simply, whether we do any of these things, it is all temporary, fleeting, and it's destined for destruction. But for those who live for the Lord, who call on him and pursue him, for them there is rest. At night when others are toiling, the minds of the faithful are pondering God's word, and they are directed to the eternal, not to the temporary. Their eyes are lifted to the hills not to the grindstone. This is what I would hope for each one of you who determined to attend the superior word, pursuing God through his word, by learning it here so that even in your work, you can meditate on it and you can contemplate his blessings and you can thank him for his son. All the toil in the world will end, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Our fourth and final thought today, the legacy we leave behind Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Suddenly, as if a complete divergence from the thought of the first two verses, there's a seemingly unrelated flow from the hand of the psalmist. He's told us about the building, the building of that house. He's told us about guarding the guarding of the city, and the conduct of our lives. And then with no seeming transition, he gets in and starts talking about children. But this is exactly as it should be. When a couple get married, the first thing they do or that they should do is get about working on their house. Unless the home, the house was built by a Lord, it never will be a home. Once the home is built, it needs to be kept in guard. You start getting possessions, and for every possession, there's an enemy waiting to take it from you. That's why we have locks on our doors and security systems. We have a home now, but will we forget the Lord? He's the one that built it. Are we just going to turn our backs on him? All of our work will be in vain if we leave him shut out of our lives. And so we establish our home and our defense on the Lord. And then we may forget him. Living in our life of comfort, secure in our defenses, and so we may pursue money and gain, and the Lord becomes an afterthought. It happens with cities, it happens with people, and it happens with churches. The first love is abandoned, and only what can increase our standing is then pursued. Not the Lord who built the home, not the Lord who guarded the city. But for those who are wise, they will remain content with his provision. They'll stay close to his word, and they will be established well in their life under the heavens. So, the next logical thing is to pursue children. A city that has no children will die off. Family lines will end if they don't come. And a church without children will grow old and it will grow stagnant. And so the psalmist reminds us that, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Every person who comes into this church and finds rest in it is, in a sense, a child of this church. If this is the Lord's church, then they will be a child of the Lord such is the fruit of the womb. It is a reward because they will benefit the church in prayer, in giving, in fellowship, and in times of joy and in times of sadness. They will be a part of the family of God and members of the commonwealth of Israel with Christ as their head. These are, according to the psalmist, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. When times are tough, they will pull together, not split apart. They will unite and prevail for the sake of each other and for the sake of Christ. I've been in several churches that have had either a pastor die or depart. I was in one church and the pastor died and they waited faithfully. They stayed together through years of waiting, waiting for a good pastor. And he finally came because they stayed together because they were grounded in Christ. And I've been in churches that have hired a new pastor and he's all but destroyed the underpinnings of the church. Instead of the cross of Christ, there is the expectation of a large congregation and a larger salary. The focus says Christ, but the reality is misdirection, misguided theories, and mishandling of the flock that is under him. Now, how does this happen? It happens from a lack of reliance on the word. A church with 10 people who holds fast to God's word is more pleasing, and I assure you of this, than a church of 30,000 that pay him lip service on Sunday morning And neglect him and his word the rest of the week. The faithful man and woman of God, the children of the church, are truly arrows in the hand of the warrior. And that means with a capital W, Jesus. Christ can and he will use you for your good and for his glory. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. I remember one day, it was at the beach about a year ago. A man came up and started arguing with me right in the middle of the sermon. Two of the congregation got right up, and they headed him off to the sidelines. And another rang the police on, or yeah, she rang the uh, police on her telly. I want to make sure I get that right. If you know who says the word telly, then you know who I'm talking about. Well, uh, I was, I was able to just sit back down and to finish the sermon. It was nice. On that day, we had a very small congregation, but I was a happy man, whose quiver was filled with children of the word. They were a defense to me, and as they grow in his word, they will be a defense to souls in need of rest. I would pray today that whatever number comes into this building, those that congregate these walls, be it few or be they many, that they will become a quiver, a full quiver, that we may not be ashamed. And the psalmist concludes his thoughts with these words. He says, they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The gate of the city is the place where the people entered and exited. But it was also the place where all the important matters were resolved. Any legal matter that you see in the Bible is always resolved at the gates of the city. The king would honor the victorious returnees of the battle there at the gate of the city. The promises of security and protection for the people would be made there at the gates of the city. If you remember Jacob having his dream and he saw a vision, there's a ladder reaching up to heaven. And The Lord above the ladder gave him all of these precious promises. And Jacob woke up and the first thing he said is, This is the gate of heaven where the promises were made. The people of the city that are founded on God and who rely on him for their success in every matter is the city who is secure and unafraid. There at the gates of the city, the people would distinguish themselves as the people of God. Their presence would be made known. Their conduct would honor their family. The father would be exalted, the mother would be respected, and there would be harmony among the people. But there would also be valor among the children. Remember, you're the children of the church. They would be willing to defend their city, to defend their home, and to leave that home when called to attack the enemy at his gate. And that's what we're to do, is to go out and to attack the enemy at his gate, to make new converts for Jesus Christ. This is the legacy of a house that is built by the Lord. It is the city whose walls the Lord guards, whose efforts are directed to life under the heavens, and whose children are properly instructed in the word of God. Such is a life dedicated to holiness, to the honoring of Christ, to the glorification of God, and to the preservation and care of his superior word, If you're willing to be counted among such an elite class of souls whose lives are dedicated to the pursuit of all that which is noble, good, and honoring, I would ask the following of you. And I mean whether you attend this church or somewhere else, to daily commit in your morning to rise and to praise, give praise to God, and then to open his word and to read it and to let it change your life for your good and for his glory. Psalm 119 says these words, My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. And then when you go out into the world to work or to enjoy whatever it is you're going to do that day, I would ask you to walk with the Lord and to talk with the Lord. Let every step that you take be a step of worship to him. Let every word be one of gratitude, praise, and edification, all things which are to be found in these verses from the 119th Psalm. My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. All day long, if the Lord is on your heart and if he's in your mind, you will be free from the sin which so easily besets and misdirects the ways of your life. And then when your day is finished, then then is the time to lay and to pray. It is the time to meditate on God's word and to let it transform you even in your sleep. The 119th Psalm goes on and it says these words of such a faithful servant. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. If you remember these things each day and then act accordingly, you will be holy in all of your conduct. The Lord will grace you with his love He'll lavish you with his blessings and take care of you in your afflictions. May this house, dedicated to God, dedicated to his honor, so inspire you to live such a life all the days of your life. May the Lord build this house. May the Lord guard this place. May the conduct in these walls be pleasing in his sight. And may we not be ashamed of our legacy. These are the prayers of my heart for the superior word and these prayers include those of you who choose to make this your spiritual home, your place of growth and fellowship and the place where you honor the exalted name of Jesus Christ. He is the son of Adam in his humanity. He is the son of God in his deity. He is the son of Abraham by promise. He is the son of Israel in his nationality. He is the son of David in his kingship. He is the Lord of creation in his being. He is Jesus. He is the word of God. And he is the Lord of this house. If you are here today and you've never understood your need for Jesus, I would ask just a couple more minutes of your time. You can spend all the rest of your days living for life under the sun, followed by eternity regarding your vain pursuit. Or you can spend your days living for life under the heavens and eternity having the glory of God's light shining on you as you walk the streets of gold in the New Jerusalem. It is Jesus who makes that possible. So please let me explain to you something very simple that you may need to know. The Bible says that we have sinned. Anybody that says they haven't sinned, I got no help for you. You know you have. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. There's two types of death that are recorded in the Bible. The first was immediate. Adam sinned and he died spiritually and there was a connection that was lost between man and God. It was completely severed at that time. And there's a second type of death. It's the death that we die in our physical bodies at the end of our life. And if the first type of death is not corrected before the second type of death comes then that first type of death will last for all eternity and you will be separated from your creator. The wages of sin is death. But, wonderful words written in the Bible, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift is something you cannot earn. It is something that you can only receive. God offers you his son in place of your sins and he will give you the righteousness of his son. But you must receive it. You must say, I cannot save myself. I can't bridge back to God because the sin happened then. And I'm going this way in time and the sin is back there. I can't go back in time. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul says, how you do it. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all you need to know. You call on Jesus as Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Why does he tie the resurrection in with that? because the wages of sin is death if that man came out of the grave then he had no sin of his own and your sin is washed away in that tomb that is the glory of what jesus christ did and i would ask you today to make that commitment and then to go out and tell other people i can't shut up about it's it been going on now for 12 years of my life and every day i want to tell somebody else about jesus Each person that came in here as a contractor, I tried to get aside and to talk to them about the Lord. I missed a few, and I regret that. But that was my goal, was to tell every person here, there is a Lord who will forgive you of your sins and who will reconcile you to his Father for all eternity. Please make that choice if you never have, because you may walk out of that door, and you may die in an accident. You may get run over. You don't know your last day. That's my hope for you. I have a closing verse for you today. It's from 1 John Chapter 1, the first and second verse. That which was seen from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Next week, we're going to go back to Genesis. We're going to have Genesis 37, 1 through 11. It's called the Sheaths of the field, and the stars of the sky. Joseph now takes center stage. Jacob is kind of back in the the background, and he's going to have a dream, and we're going to talk about that dream. Before I give you our poem today, and before we take communion, I'd like to tell you this. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you, whether you know it or not. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, so call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Now, I've got a poem, and what I normally do is just evaluate the uh, passage from Genesis. I turn it into a poem, but today I didn't have any real text for us, so I took the psalm and a few other verses that we looked at, and I combined them into a little special poem for you. So here we go. This is called, Unless the Lord Builds the House. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. I say again, unless the Lord guards the city, then even from a mouse, the watchman stays awake, and he does so in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early To sit up late in the night hours so deep, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, this is the truth, so are the children that come at the time of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver, and it is full of them, a feeling so great. They shall not be ashamed, the Lord will deliver, and they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, so I am blessed. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is this home and where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look a glorious trade on him who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, on the rock divine, who keeps my word near to his hand. And the rain may descend, the floods come like a shock, and the winds blow and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. He ignores the wise counsel and the rock divine he who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew on that house. They beat and it fell and great was its fall. Such the shame in the house where destruction is complete. And so finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you as you proclaim Jesus and carry the word of God always at your side. Pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful in what he has begun. He is the one who will establish you to the very end, and he will guard you always from the evil one. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for allowing to preach your word. I cannot imagine a greater honor and that you would entrust it to a guy like me. I fail you daily, Lord, and I'm so sorry about those failures, but you allow me each week to keep going. I don't understand it. You're a merciful God. You're gracious in all your ways. You're perfect. You're holy. You're beautiful. I thank you for the opportunity to move off of the beach and into a little place where we can congregate and study your word and share it, to fellowship with each other. To rejoice with each other in times of rejoicing and to mourn with each other in times of mourning. Lord, your word is so perfect. It is so glorious. Let us never trade it for soup, but to hold it in the highest esteem. Just may you be glorified through how we read it and tenderly care for it and treat it. Lord, thank you above all for the gift, the most wonderful gift of your son, our Lord and Savior, who died on a cross and shed his blood so that we could have reconciliation to you. And I would pray that if there's a heart in this room right now that is not called on Jesus as Lord, that he will simply do it. Just be reconciled to you, that simple walk of faith, and then pursue that word that you have given us all the days of his or her life to your honor and glory. And this I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.